to a special global town hall. I'm Patrick Ryan, founding president of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Today, we're pleased to present a conversation on the United States, Iran, and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, the 2015 nuclear deal. First, I'd like to thank our program partners, the National Area Chamber of Commerce, the International Business Council, and the Center for International Business at beautiful Belmont University. I'd also like to thank the Iran Project for its collaboration on this program. To lead our conversation, we're fortunate to have with us this evening, Ms. Kelsey Davenport. She is the Director of uh, Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association, where she focuses on the nuclear and missile programs in Iran, North Korea, India, and Pakistan, and on international efforts to prevent proliferation and nuclear terrorism. She is the lead author of the P4 plus one and Iran nuclear deal alert newsletter, which assesses developments related to the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran and the North Korea nuclear uh, denuclearization digest, which tracks efforts to negotiate with North Korea over its nuclear weapons program. Ms. Davenport joined the Arms Control Association in August, 2011 as a Herbert Scoville Jr. Peace Fellow. She's been quoted in numerous publications, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, Foreign Policy, Newsweek, Reuters, Christian Science Monitor, Vox, and The Guardian has provided commentary on NPR, CNN, ABC, MSNBC, Fox News, Al Jazeera, and C-SPAN. She's published op-eds in various outlets, including Time, Reuters, CNN, The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, and Defense One. Most recently, she uh, published a byline or a uh, op-ed in the Tennessean uh, this Sunday, an op-ed on the Iran nuclear deal, which uh, I was honored to share the byline. Prior to joining the Arms Control Association, Kelsey worked at Think Tank uh, in Jerusalem, researching Middle East security issues. She holds a master's degree in peace studies from the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame and a Bachelor of Arts summa cum laude in International Studies and Political Science from Butler University. The Arms Control Association works to deliver authoritative information, ideas, and analysis that help shape the public policy debate in Washington across the United States and around the world on nuclear proliferation and major arms control. The association is based in Washington, D.C., but this evening, Ms. Davenport comes to us from her home state, Montana. Kelsey, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Pat, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here with you and with all of you who are tuning in. And I really appreciated the opportunity to, to work with you on the op-ed in, in the Tennessean. So thank you so much for that. Well, great. Um, I had the, uh, the good fortune to uh, catch a uh, broadcast this week that you did at the Cleveland Council on World Affairs with Paul Pilar. It was uh, a great uh, presentation on what's going on uh, in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, so we're, we're looking forward to having a, a great conversation here uh, as well. Um, I think the, uh, the audience is familiar with putting their questions in the, the Zoom screen, the uh, Q&A tab. We look forward to having uh, uh, some great questions this evening. And uh, with uh, no further ado, I'll uh, turn the floor over to you, uh, Kelsey, for your opening remarks, and then we'll have a conversation and then open the uh, floor to questions from the audience. Great, thank you. So to kick off tonight's discussion, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the nuclear deal itself, what it was intended to do, how it functioned when it was implemented, the status of the deal now, and what we might see going forward as President Biden seeks to try to restore the agreement. So first, just to recap the actual nuclear deal itself, which as Pat noted is, is known by its acronym, the JCPOA or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And this was a multilateral nuclear agreement that a group of countries, including the United States, we reached with Iran in July of 2015. And it resolved a decades long crisis over Iran's nuclear program. Because if we look back at Iran's nuclear history, you know, despite having joined the nuclear nonproliferation in 1970, which prohibits them from pursuing nuclear weapons, uh, Iran began to engage in a series of illicit nuclear activities in the 1990s and through 2000 and through 2003 in violation of those NPT commitments. They had an organized nuclear weapons program. 
Now, the deal itself uh, came as a response of multilateral efforts to try to uh, respond to, to Iran's illicit nuclear activities, uh, to restrain the program, to provide greater transparency, and to ensure that it was entirely peaceful. And it came after you know, more than a decade of increasingly stringent Security Council resolutions and sanctions condemning Iran's illicit nuclear activities and sanctioning Iran, you know, paired with US and, and EU sanctions targeting Iran for this illicit nuclear work. So when the agreement was reached in July of, of 2015, it, it really has three critical components. You know, the first, and I think one of the most important is that it put in place the most intrusive monitoring and verification regime ever negotiated. Essentially, every element of Iran's nuclear program is monitored. Many of the facilities are subject to continuous surveillance. And inspectors have access to any location in Iran, including military sites, if they have allegations of illicit nuclear material or activities taking place there. Uh, the second major component of the JCPOA is that it puts limits on Iran's nuclear activities, primarily Iran's ability to produce fissile material. So the JCPOA allows Iran um, some limited uranium enrichment activities, uranium enrichment being one way by which a country can produce fissile material for a bomb. But it essentially ensures that with that limited program, if Iran ever tried to produce the fissile material for a bomb, it would take them more than 12 months to do so. And the group of countries that negotiated with Iran believed that that time period would be sufficient to allow for an international response if they detected that Iran was going to pursue nuclear weapons. And the third major component on the nuclear side is that the deal puts in place permanent prohibitions on certain weaponization related activities. And this is quite important because when the international community suspected that Iran was engaged in an illicit nuclear weapons program. Uh, Iran tried to justify some of these activities by saying it was pursuing certain types of explosives for conventional military purposes and for other areas like oil and gas, um, like oil and gas exploration. So essentially that they needed certain types of explosives to penetrate the rock for, for those types of activities. Uh, so this permanent prohibition essentially ensures that if Iran were to, um, if the international community detected that Iran were engaged in these activities again, you know, that would be a violation of, of the deal. So they essentially gave up that right to certain weaponization related work, even for non-nuclear weapons purposes. So taken together, if we look at these three areas, the provisions are really designed in total to deter Iran from pursuing nuclear weapons, to detect any illicit movement towards nuclear weapons. And if Iran were to take that movement towards nuclear weapons to make sure that the international community has adequate time to respond. Now, the, um, the deal is also designed to try to influence Iran's cost-benefit analysis when thinking about future nuclear weapons development. You know, what we know about Iran's past nuclear weapons program was that Iran's leadership essentially decided to give up that program because they no longer believed pursuing nuclear weapons was in the best interest of the country's security. So the costs of the program, the risks of the program outweighed the benefits. Uh, so the nuclear deal also tries to influence that cost-benefit analysis by providing Iran with economic incentives uh, and ending Iran's diplomatic isolation. Um, so if we look at you know, how the deal functioned when it was fully implemented from January of 2016 to May of 2018, you know, it, it really worked better than most experts, including myself, you know, actually expected. You know, this two years of full implementation demonstrated the non-proliferation benefits. And we have repeated reports from the US intelligence community that confirmed that the deal put in place that 12-month breakout period. So confirmed that it would take around 12 months to produce the material for a bomb if they decided to go down that route. And that the increased visibility into Iran's nuclear program, you know, provided some assurance, provided assurance that Iran had not undertaken any activities relevant to weaponization. So the U.S. intelligence community offered these assessments, and similarly, we had you know a series of regular reports from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the body charged with actually overseeing the monitoring and verification, uh, to essentially also ensure that Iran was abiding by its commitments. Now, despite these benefits and despite Iran's clear record of compliance, 
Uh, former President Trump made the decision in May of 2018 to withdraw the United States from the nuclear deal and reimpose sanctions on Iran that were lifted under the accord. Uh, and not only did he reimpose those sanctions, but his administration at that point really embarked on an effort to deny Iran any benefits of complying with the deal and essentially to ensure that foreign companies trying to engage in legal business with Iran would be deterred to do so out of fear of being penalized by the United States. Uh, so it's not surprising that after a year of this concerted sanctions push by the Trump administration, Iran began to violate the deal in, in, in return, beginning in, in May of, of 2019. And that's because you know, at its basis, the nuclear deal with Iran is essentially a transactional agreement. You know, it traded you know, sanctions relief, the end of international and economic isolation for Iran you know, in return uh, for those limits on Iran's nuclear program and the increased monitoring. So when Iran wasn't receiving any benefits from the deal, it began to violate it to build up its own body of leverage to try to push the remaining countries in the accord to deliver on sanctions relief, and then to push the United States to return to the accord. Uh, so that really brings us you know, to where we are today. You know, the United States is no longer a party to the deal. Uh, even if they were a party, we, the United States would be in violation of its commitments because all of these sanctions have been reimposed. And Iran you know, remains party to the accord, but also is in violation of a range of commitments uh, given the steps that it's taken to breach some of the limits put in place you know, by the accord. Now, Biden said prior to his election that his plan for Iran was to restore the United States to compliance with the JCPOA if Iran were willing to do likewise, and then use the opening provided by the JCPOA to negotiate with Iran on a broader range of US concerns in the region. So the country's ballistic missile program, its support for terrorism, and a longer term framework to address Iran's nuclear program after certain limits within the nuclear deal sort of started to expire. And you know, President Rouhani on the Iranian side, he was in a very similar place. You know, he has repeatedly said that Iran's violations are reversible and that Iran too will return to compliance you know, if the United States lifts sanctions. And more important than you know, what President Rouhani has said is that Iran's supreme leader appears to have also endorsed the strategy. I mean, he said very clearly last December that, um, and I'm paraphrasing here that you know, if, if if Iran can get sanctions relief, you know, it shouldn't wait for a single second to, to do so. Uh, so he appears to have sort of endorsed Rouhani's strategy and given Rouhani the authority to work with the United States to, to restore the deal. Uh, so given that we have then a broad interest by both sides in terms of you know, returning to a full implementation you know, of the JCPOA, you know, it's important to ask you know, two questions. I mean, first, is it actually possible to restore the deal? And then second, you know, would restoring the deal still benefit US security and nonproliferation priorities given you know, the actions that Iran has taken on its nuclear program and given the changing sort of regional security um, landscape? And in my assessment, I mean, the answer to both of those questions is yes. Uh, but first, you know, to take the feasibility question. You know, if we actually look at what the United States and Iran would need to do to return to compliance with the accord. Uh, the steps could be taken you know, relatively quickly uh, and, and they're relatively simple in terms of execution. You know, both sides have the technical capacity to unwind their violations and return to compliance. Now, to take the US side first, you know, there are two main things that President Biden would need to do. You know, first, he would need to revoke the executive order that Trump issued in May of 2018 removing the United States from the JCPOA. And revoking that order would essentially kind of clear the way uh, for the United States to return to the deal. And then second, to actually be in compliance with the JCPOA's obligations, he would need to lift the required sanctions outlined in the nuclear deal. Uh, this is not all of the sanctions that you, the United States has on Iran. There were significant sanctions that the US has on Iran that were never impacted by the JCPOA, but it would be that set of sanctions related to the nuclear deal. And Biden can do this you know, at, at any moment. He can do both of these actions you know, with, with the stroke of a pen. It does not require congressional approval or support uh, because again, these are fall under you know, executive orders and would be executive actions. 
Now, if we look at what it would take for Iran to return to compliance, you know, that is a bit more tricky. But again, I think, you know, still something that could be accomplished relatively quickly, kind of within three months. Now, most of the initial violations that Iran, you know, conducted, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the nuclear deal through the end of of 2020 um, are, are largely reversible. And most of these were activities that Iran had undertaken prior to the negotiations on the JCPOA. So they essentially just restarted activities that were halted or modified as a result of, of the deal. And basically, you know, what Iran would need to do is you know, they would need to either kind of blend down or ship out the excess uranium that they'd stockpiled you know, over the past you know, two years. Uh, they'd need to halt uranium enrichment at one of their sites. They'd need to remove some excess advanced centrifuges. The centrifuges are the machines that are used to enrich uranium. Uh, and they would need to dial back their uranium enrichment to lower levels. And again, like I said, all of these quickly reversible could probably be done kind of within three months. And with the exception of some of the advanced centrifuges, Iran hasn't really gained any knowledge uh, that would be irreversible as, as part of this process. But that being said, if we look at what Iran has planned in terms of its violations, um, upcoming activities you know, are more serious and would be more difficult to, to reverse. And that's why I think the Biden administration has a narrow window of opportunity for actually restoring the deal. Because in last December, Iran passed a law uh, requiring it to take certain steps to breach the deal in 2021. And these steps yet, I think, in, in increasingly more serious and difficult to reverse as time goes by. So one thing I would note is even just this week, you know, Iran decreased it's uh, decreased its monitoring and verification under the agreement. So it reduced access to inspectors, it reduced the information provided. Now, it, Iran did reach a special arrangement with the agency whereby it said you know, it would hold on to that information for three months and then provide it at the end of the three month period uh, so that inspectors could then kind of reconstruct Iran's history of, of nuclear activity during that time. Um, but Iran said it would only do that if the JCPOA is restored and, and sanctions are lifted. Uh, so that I think really creates a critical window for action because if that data is lost, you know, that creates gaps in our understanding of, nuclear, of Iran's nuclear program that would be difficult to reconstitute. And it will fuel speculation that Iran's been engaged in illicit activities. Uh, so again, you know, that's a more serious breach, more difficult to reverse. Iran has another um, breach planned in the coming months, uh, and that has to do with the production of uranium metal. Now, uranium metal is another one of these activities that has both civilian and weaponization related purposes. Iran could um, produce uranium metal um, for its, uh, to, to fuel a reactor, which is what Iran says it's doing. Uh, but when you learn the process of producing uranium metal, that also has weaponization related weapon. It's also relevant to producing a, a nuclear weapon. So if Iran you know, masters that process and gains that understanding and capability, you know, that's knowledge that can't be reversed. I mean, the production plant for producing uranium metal, that of course can be dismantled, verifiably so, but Iran will have gained knowledge and information. And that's why you know, I'm saying returning and restoring the JCPOA, uh, restoring those benefits becomes more complicated the longer the United States and Iran you know, wait to do so uh, because Iran is engaged in these activities that are increasingly more concerning uh, and increasingly difficult to reverse. So I think there's an imperative to act quite quickly. Uh, so then, you know, so given the fact that it is sort of feasible to, to restore the JCPOA, I think the next question to ask then, is it still beneficial from a nonproliferation and security perspective? And here again, I think the answer is, is, you know, is quite clearly yes. I mean, from the United States perspective, you know, we know from those two years of full implementation that the JCPOA works, that it can be effectively monitored. And it builds that window for the international community to react you know, if Iran were to decide to pursue nuclear weapons. So the nonproliferation benefits have been demonstrated and are clear. 
I think restoring the JCPOA also staves off a more immediate nuclear crisis with Iran and gives the United States some breathing room to develop a more comprehensive strategy to negotiations with Iran on a broader array of issues, which is what Biden says he wants to do. You know, but all of those issues, negotiating on all of those issues becomes increasingly more difficult, you know, if there's the threat of, of, of a nuclear of armed Iran sort of hanging over it. You know, I would also say that you know, what is you know what what is the alternative at this point? I mean, the Trump administration attempted to pressure Iran back into negotiations on a broader, more comprehensive deal, and all we've seen from that maximum pressure pressure campaign is the United States has become more isolated, and the United States has lost credibility uh, by turning its back on an agreement that's largely supported by the international community and U.S. allies. Uh, and Iran has ratcheted up its, its nuclear activities. So the idea that the United States you know, can, can use leverage gained by Trump's sanctions uh, to try to negotiate a better deal you know, really doesn't you know, hold up. I mean, the US does not have leverage from these sanctions because it doesn't have a credible path to actually negotiate with them. So, you know, another common, um, common criticism that's used uh, to counter Biden's plan to restore the JCPOA uh, is, is this idea that, you know, well, parts of the deal expire. And now in 2021, you know, we're closer to some of those limits expiring. These limits are often referred to as sunsets. And, you know, well, wouldn't it be better to sort of to, to start over and just negotiate sort of a longer term deal that doesn't have these sunsets? Uh, and again, you know, I, I think that that criticism is misguided for a few reasons. I mean, first, it's important to keep in mind that there are parts of the nuclear deal that are permanent. You know, these more intrusive inspections are permanent. They do not expire. Uh, the prohibition that I mentioned on certain weaponization activities, you know, that is also permanent. You know, that doesn't expire. You know, yes, you know, some of the limits on Iran's nuclear activities, those will expire over time. But if we return to the JCPOA now, you know, we still have you know, another 10 years until most of those limits start to expire, which is ample time, I think, to negotiate an agreement that either builds on the JCPOA uh, or seeks to look at it from sort of a more regional perspective. Uh, and that kind of brings me to one of the last criticisms that we frequently hear um, that's sort of levied against the Biden administration to try to persuade it not to return to the JCPOA. And that's that the deal didn't change Iran's activities in the region. And you know, my response to that is that it didn't change Iran's activities in the region. And, and frankly, it wasn't meant to change Iran's activities in the region. The nuclear deal was very narrowly focused on Iran's nuclear program because in 2013, uh, the time it would take Iran to pursue a nuclear weapon had dropped considerably. It was down to about you know, two to three months if they had made the decision to do so. So this was a more imminent threat that needed to be addressed. And addressing, again, addressing the nuclear issue, uh, removing the nuclear crisis, you know, had cleared the way uh, to negotiate with Iran on a broader array of, of, of issues. And this is clearly what the Europeans had hoped would happen, uh, but the Trump administration, you know, wasn't interested at the time. So again, you know, now I think if we restore the JCPOA, uh, we remove the immediacy of the nuclear crisis and we restore some of the U.S. credibility in negotiations with Iran, you know, that path forward to try to negotiate on those regional issues, you know, might be, might be more clear. So just lastly, to sum up, you know, what, what might we see going forward? And, you know, here I would say, you know, despite the fact that both Iran and the United States, you know, want to restore the JCPOA, we haven't seen a lot of action yet. And that is apparently because it, it seems like neither side wants to, be, to take the first move, probably due to domestic political considerations in, in, in both camps. I mean, Biden says, you know, Iran needs to rein in its nuclear activities first. Rouhani, of course, is saying the US needs to lift sanctions and then Iran will reverse its actions. So there's a bit of a stalemate. Uh, the good news is, you know, we might in the coming weeks see a meeting brokered by the European Union that brings all of the parties to the deal together, uh, to which the United States would be invited to. And then at that point, you know, we might be able to see uh, the EU coordinate the steps 
and sequencing the actions that the United States and Iran you know, would have to see to, to actually sort of return to the JCPOA. Um, so I think that that's positive and that's something that we might see kind of going forward. And again, then I think restoring the JCPOA would really create that space for the United States to engage with its partners, to engage with its EU allies and think about then that more comprehensive approach to Iran, a longer term framework for Iran's nuclear program or for nuclear activities in the region and how to support a, a regional security dialogue. I'm happy to talk more about you know, those two things you know, if, if folks are interested, but I think I'll, I'll stop there and just end by saying that you know, the nuclear deal with Iran, it, it proved to be effective. It proved to have significant nonproliferation benefits and restoring it and building on it is really a common sense path forward for US foreign policy at this time. Thank you. Terrific, uh, Kelsey, that was a, a masterful presentation of the, of the issue and the complexity of it. Uh, we have a much better understanding of, uh, of where uh, the deal is now and, and uh, the benefits from it uh, going forward. So I guess the, the two major takeaways are uh, all the parties agree we want to prevent Iran from acquiring enough fissile material to develop a nuclear weapon and the uh, most advantageous vehicle to do that at our disposal in short terms is the J a return of the United States to the JCPOA and having Iran return to compliance. Um, with that, uh, we, uh, we have a number of questions, but I, I've got a few that uh, I'd like to uh, put on the table here. Uh, it seems that uh, you need a scorecard. Uh, the day-to-day -day transactions in the news uh, come fast and furious on this issue. We've had a meeting between uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken and the foreign ministers of the EU3, France, uh, Britain, and Germany. Um, I, I think, uh, how would you characterize how both parties, Iran and uh, the EU plus the US are, are coming at this? It seems a, a torturous dance of, of who's gonna get up and, and ask uh, the other dance partner to, uh, to take to the floor. Yes, that it does seem to be you know, some flashbacks to those awkward middle school dances, you know, who's, who's, who's gonna make the first move. Um, you, you mentioned the meeting between Secretary of State Blinken and, and his European counterparts last week, and, and I think that that was critically important because one thing that was so problematic about the Trump administration's approach to the JCPOA was that it rejected the concerns and the security interests of U.S. allies that pushed very hard for the United States to remain into the agreement because they viewed the JCPOA as critical for European security. So coming out of that meeting, it, it appears that the United States and the Europeans are now kind of back in lockstep, recognizing that first, you know, restore the JCPOA, you know, restore credibility in the deal, and then use that as a foundation for, for further negotiations. And again, you know, what appears to be, you know, consensus, you know, being created is that a multilateral discussion between this group of countries, the P5 plus one, you know, and Iran on the longer term framework for Iran's nuclear program, you know, would be one track of those future discussions. And then a supported regional security dialogue, you know, would be another track of those discussions. I think with the acknowledgement there being that, you know, a lot of the activities that the United States is concerned about in the region around support for certain terrorist groups um, and, and, and other activities, you know, stem from regional security rivalries and imbalances that have to be addressed by those players. And I think that, that there'd be appetite on the Iranian side for that. I mean, Iran has put forward its own proposal uh, for a regional security dialogue. I think it, it recognizes you know, the importance of, of regional engagement on the security front. Uh, and in, you know, and it, it has said in the past too that it's not opposed to the idea of further negotiations on its nuclear program if the JCPOA is, is restored first. Uh, so I'm hopeful that now that Blinken has had a chance to coordinate with his European counterparts that they have this idea of a process that sort of convened under the auspices of the European Union uh, that Iran will respond. And it certainly looks like Iran you know, will accept this invitation to a European Union convened discussion. Uh, the foreign minister said that they're strongly considering it. 
So I view that as a good sign that we might be able to get this process towards restoring the deal, you know, off to a good start in the next few weeks. The conversation about regional issues, uh, I, I seem to recall a number of proposals put forward by Iran, and the common denominator among them seems to be the departure of the United States from the region. Is that uh, a non-starter to, to open conversations with, uh, with that being the, uh, the bottom line? Well, I don't think the United States is, is going to be leaving the Middle East anytime soon, you know, whether Iran kind of wants that or, or not. Uh, but I think, you know, one aspect that the United States can and should consider is how its sales of military technology to states in the region you know, impact the balances of power and impact Iran's own security perceptions. I mean, one of the criticisms consistently levied against the nuclear deal is that it didn't take into account Iran's ballistic missiles. And, you know, in the pre-2003 period, you know, it did appear that Iran was developing ballistic missiles uh, in order to, to, to use, if it produced nuclear warheads, to deliver those nuclear warheads. But, you know, once Iran stopped its organized nuclear weapons program in 2003, you know, it, it really sort of changed the emphasis on its ballistic missile program. And its ballistic missile program became much more regionally oriented and much more designed to give Iran a conventional deterrent against better armed adversaries in the region that were benefiting from significant weapon sales from the United States. Uh, so I think, you know, encouraging that regional security dialogue, you know, recognizing that US foreign military sales have an impact on how Iran views the dynamic you know, is something that the United States can do you know, to support a productive dialogue you know, while, you know, while maintaining that you know, it may not be advisable for the United States to completely leave the region you know, at, at this time. The, um, one of the obstacles to an agreement or one of the reasons uh, we've all felt that the clock was ticking on a resumption of American participation in the JCPOA was the uh, action of the parliament that you mentioned in early December, uh, stemming from the assassination of uh, a scientist who was uh, described as the father of the Iranian nuclear program in November. And the parliament uh, mandated that uh, Iran start to limit access to uh, facilities to the IAEA. Can you tell us about the, the recent um, uh, dialogue on uh, on that uh, particular uh, aspect of access. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm I'm glad you brought up the the law and the assassination of Mushan Fakhrizadeh because I think that also raises an, another important reminder is that you know there is no military solution to Iran's nuclear program, and you know trying to assassinate Iranian scientists that have been integral to Iran's nuclear activities in the past, you know, either of these activities is more likely to drive Iran to develop a nuclear weapon because it will think it needs that security capability to deter any future attacks. Um, so to get back though to, to the main you know, thrust of your question, you know, the assassination of Fakhrizadeh really accelerated this nuclear law. Uh, the nuclear law was actually, you know, considered, you know, in, in, in July, but, you know, Rouhani managed to kind of put it off to, to, to slow roll any consideration, um, but it was accelerated after Fakhrizadeh was assassinated. And what it required Iran to do just this past week on February 23rd was to end its cooperation with the more intrusive monitoring mechanisms put in place by the nuclear deal. Now, there are still monitoring provisions that are not affected by Iran's suspension of these JCPOA-specific measures. Uh, as a party to the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, Iran is required to implement uh, what's known as a comprehensive safeguards agreement. And that still gives inspectors access to materials where uh, or to, to sites where nuclear materials are produced or stored. So the nuclear material will still be monitored. But inspectors access to facilities that support the nuclear program, their ability to investigate allegations of undeclared activities and sites, all of that has been suspended. Now, in order to stave off the crisis that I think would have emerged had this suspension just happened, uh, the head of the Atomic Energy Organization, Rafael Grossi, traveled to Tehran last weekend, and he negotiated 
negotiated a three-month sort of interim arrangement with Iran, whereby Iran will collect the data that the IAEA would normally get. Uh, and then it will hand it over to the IAEA after three months if sanctions are lifted. And if sanctions aren't lifted, then Iran will destroy that data. And I think that you know the situation is certainly not ideal. I mean, any loss of monitoring and verification is, is very concerning. But the agreement reached you know, staves off a more immediate crisis and it does give the agency the ability to reconstruct Iran's nuclear activities for this three month period to make sure that nothing illicit sort of took place. So I think, you know, this negotiation bought the Biden administration more time, uh, but it's imperative now that, you know, Biden reciprocate, recognize that Iran showed some restraint in reaching this agreement uh, to try to jumpstart those talks to restore the JCPOA, because the, the clock really is ticking at this point. Uh, we have a couple of questions that are starting to come in uh, on the, the regional aspects of the JCPOA and Skip Cornett in Delaware, Ohio, uh, asked about the uh, uh, whether or not an agreement should include aspects dealing with Iran's uh, involvement in terrorist activity. Um, they wanted the JCPOA to include the element of Iran's behavior. Uh, if you can clarify the differences between controlling Iran's uh, nuclear activity and involvement in preventing uh, promoting terrorism, I, I think you talked about that a little bit. But maybe if you could uh, address specifically. Uh, the question of Iran as uh, a state sponsor of terrorism and, and uh, negotiations that might include um, scaling back that, those kinds of activities. And Angela Weck in uh, Peoria, Illinois, uh, it seems that we have all of our state neighbors here. So here's a challenge to the Tennessee participants. Right, let's get some questions in here. Uh, Angela asks what the effects will be of the, the uh, potential changes to the U.S. relationship with uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, we see that um, uh, the Biden administration is taking a different uh, approach than the, than the Trump administration did. Mm. Yeah, so two two very good questions. So to look at the the first question, you know, I would say that um, that first, you know, I think we have to try to understand why Iran chose to pursue nuclear weapons and why Iran engages you know, in activities such as, you know, support for, for terrorist groups. And if we look at, you know, Iran's initial decision to, to pursue nuclear weapons, you know, they, a lot of that experience stemmed from Iran's experience during the Iran-Iraq war. Iran was subjected to, to chemical weapons attacks. Uh, it saw much of the international community rally to the side of Iraq, you know, even though Iraq was conducting these horrific, you know, chemical weapons attacks. Uh, and it began to view nuclear weapons as, as necessary, as pursuing nuclear weapons as essentially uh, deterring future attacks against its, its sovereignty. Now, in 2003, Iran's calculus on that changed, probably in part because of the US decision to invade Iraq over the pretense of Iraq's possession of, of weapons of mass destruction. So it may no longer have seen, or may have seen the risk of pursuing that program as, as too high. Uh, so right now, when Iran is you know, ratcheting up its nuclear activities, you know, it's about retaining the capability necessary to pursue a nuclear weapon if they wanted to do so. Uh, and it's about trying to leverage the United States back into negotiations uh, to provide that sanctions relief that they feel like they're owed. Uh, so this isn't, so the, the nuclear program itself, you know, isn't something that Iran is using right now to try to advance its security interests in the region. Whereas, you know, its support for groups like Hamas and, and Hezbollah, you know, it's, it's asymmetric strategies in the region, you know, that's about how it perceives its more sort of immediate security environment and what it needs to do to actually counter, um, you know, some of the, the, these better armed adversarial states, you know, in the Middle East. Uh, so that's why I think, you know, we need to consider how to address these programs separately. And, and, and linking them, I think, just increases the likelihood that it would be impossible to find a, to ever reach a deal that, that would actually do so. 
So, you know, given that Iran is trying to use this nuclear program, you know, as leverage for, for sanctions relief, you know, it makes sense that the United States and others that have the power to grant that sanctions relief, you know, negotiate that avenue with Iran. Uh, but given that Iran sees its, its support for groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, its other asymmetric activities as, you know, as sort of a, a, a um, as, as a proxy, you know, for, for actually exercising its foreign policy and security strategy in the region. And that's why I think you need uh, that regional formation, that regional dialogue, so that Iran can actually, you know, speak with, address those security concerns that, you know, Hezbollah and Hamas and those types of activities are directed at. Um, and, and the United States, you know, it can't negotiate that package with Iran, you know, trying to take into account, you know, the role that Saudi Arabia plays, the role that Israel plays, but supporting the regional dialogue, encouraging countries in the region to participate in that dialogue. I think the US has a natural place there. Um, so then on the question about the US, you know, relationship with, with Saudi Arabia, I mean, I think that there are, I think that there are a few ways that this could, you know, play out. I mean, first, I think Biden has you know, made you know quite made it quite clear that you know, he does not support you know the Saudi-led war in Lem in Yemen. You know, would like to see a, a, a resolution to that that conflict, and I think that sends a very strong signal to the Saudis that you know they no longer are going to have kind of an implicit endorsement of U.S. approval for whatever activities they engage in. I mean, similarly, the decision to release some of the details just I think today or yesterday about the murder of, um, of, of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, I think also kind of sends that message that the Saudis are no longer going to have kind of that carte blanche, you know, to, to, do whatever they, to do whatever they want. Now, one thing that I think could be very interesting in, in this process is to think about how to build on the Iran nuclear deal at the regional level to also address regional nuclear concerns. And one thing that I think the US-Saudi relationship up until now has really shielded Riyadh from is some of the criticism that is due Saudi Arabia for their nuclear activities. I mean, we don't often talk about what's happening in Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia has um, incredibly weak and insufficient international inspections while they're trying to grow a civil nuclear program. And they're engaged in some activities that are very suggestive of trying to match Iran's capabilities. So similar to Iran trying to have the components necessary for a bomb, you know, should they ever make the decision to do so. And the Saudis have threatened to pursue nuclear weapons in the past. So very kind of troubling activities here. Uh, but if the US, you know, I think, you know, kind of takes a step back, you know, increases its criticism of the Saudi nuclear program, recognizes the need for regional nuclear restraints. And that also might be more amenable to Iran. I mean, Iran may be more willing to, to subject its nuclear program to limits kind of beyond what most states are subjected to if it sees its neighbors subjected to the same limits, because then that becomes a more mutually beneficial deal. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm hopeful both from kind of stabilizing the regional perspective, but also thinking about regional nuclear limits, a more critical U.S.-Saudi relationship, you know, could benefit both of those tracks going forward. Well, when we talk about regional proliferation and, you know, the, uh, the new approach of the Biden administration of Saudi Arabia, there's also uh, apparently a new approach of the Biden administration towards Israel, which is the 800-pound nuclear gorilla in the room as far as regional uh, proliferation. Uh, how might uh, Israel uh, play into uh, both the aspects of uh, the regional issues, Israelis uh, disdain for the JCPOA, uh, the political implications of Israeli support uh, against the JCPOA, and the fact that uh, trying to uh, persuade Iran that they don't need a nuclear weapon because it's a safe neighborhood, when in, in fact they're uh, one of their principal adversaries uh, has, has a pretty good inventory. Mm -hmm. Yes, so Israel, of course, doesn't acknowledge that it has nuclear weapons, but it's about, you know, one, one of the regions, I think, worst kept secrets, probably one of the world's <laughs> worst kept secrets, if, 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 we're, if we're looking more broadly. Uh, but, um, but despite that, you know, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was one of the most outspoken critics of the nuclear deal 
in, in 2015 when the deal was finalized. And he's probably one of the most outspoken critics now trying to pressure Biden not to return to the nuclear deal. And I think at times that creates the impression that there's Israeli consensus behind Netanyahu's assessment that the nuclear deal is dangerous for Israeli security. Uh, but if you, if you look more closely, that really isn't the case. And increasingly, we're seeing you know, former military officials, former intelligence officials from Israel, and even some current officials talking about how restoring the JCPOA will actually benefit Israel's security uh, because it removes that nuclear threat uh, and then can create some space you know, for, for other avenues of, 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 of dialogue. Um, so, so certainly I think, you know, I, I think Netanyahu's voice is, is, is very loud, but I think we have to remember that his criticism you know, is not representative of, of the consensus of, of, of Israeli society. And I think it will be very interesting to see, you know, if someone else wins the election in March, uh, if that calculus kind of vis-a-vis -vis the JCPOA changes. Because I think, you know, to, to be very honest, I think, you know, for Netanyahu, any deal with Iran that allows them to retain any nuclear infrastructure, he'll write off as a bad deal. But at the same time, there is no possible deal with Iran that eliminates Iran's nuclear infrastructure. Uh, so, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, there wasn't going, there isn't going to be any kind of winning over of, of, of Netanyahu. Yeah, and, and you're, you're correct that um, uh, the Israeli view of nuclear uh, developments uh, and the JCPOA is not a, a monolithic uh, view. There's, there's been some very public dissents from uh, figures in authority. Let's turn to a question from uh, Overton Colton. He asked, uh, isn't there an Iranian election uh, this summer? What are the implications for the JCPOA? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So in June, uh, there'll be a, an Iranian presidential election. Uh, president Rouhani has served two terms as president, so he's not eligible to run again. Uh, and the, the, the Iranian election in June, I, I think also, again, is a reason why the clock is ticking on the Biden administration. Uh, it, is, it seems quite clear at this point that a more hardline candidate is likely to win the presidency in June, in part because of what's the crisis that surrounded the JCPOA. So when the nuclear agreement was reached in Iran, it was incredibly popular. I mean, polls show you know, upwards of 75, 80% approved of the deal. But you know, Trump pulling out, reimposing sanctions, you know, while Iran was complying with the deal, you know, unsurprisingly, you know, support for the JCPOA has plummeted, support for Rouhani has plummeted, and it's allowed some of the more hardline factions in Iran that you know, opposed negotiations with the United States to begin with, that opposed any rapprochement between Iran and the West, to basically say, you know, see, I told you so. The United States you know, cannot be trusted. So you know, sort of these anti-US, more hardline factions have really profited from the fact that, uh, that, that the US reimposed sanctions on Iran. And it's really allowed them to kind of to strengthen their hand, to strengthen their support. And I think it is quite likely that, you know, that one of them you know, will, will win in, in, in June. Now, if the deal is restored, uh, you know, could that change that? Could that mean that a more candidate, moderate candidate has a chance? You know, maybe, I mean, I'm not optimistic at this point, just given how low approval of the JCPOA and Rouhani has fallen. Uh, but again, you know, I think it would be incredibly unwise of the United States not to seize this moment when they have a president who's committed to restoring the JCPOA, who's trying to keep that window open, you know, not to seize that opportunity. And besides the uh, election, we were also looking at a calendar that's cluttered with uh, other obstacles. Uh, the Nowruz holiday, which uh, is a couple of weeks uh, in which not much is gonna happen. And then uh, we begin the, the campaign for the election. So it's not, not like we have a, a, a runway between here and June. Yeah, you know, exactly. And, you know, I think too, you know, all of these steps, you know, are, are going to take some time, you know, when, especially on the Iranian side, when it comes to dismantling these machines, when it comes to trying to, you know, ship out or blend down th this excess material. 
And the longer it takes, I think the more you increase the chance of, of, of spoilers. I mean, the fact that Biden hasn't taken any concrete steps to date, you know, is already causing some questioning in Tehran. You know, is he really serious about returning to the JCPOA? Is this a ploy? Does he actually want to try to renegotiate it? And so, so the longer it takes there, you know, that also fuels that speculation about US sincerity to return to the JCPOA. I have a question from uh, Alan Hedeman, who asked, some people were saying that if we go back in the Iran agreement, we may be sending them another $3 billion. Do you have any idea what they're talking about? And, and uh, we've heard from certain political uh, wings in, in the United States that the, uh, the original JCPOA, uh, the, the talk about pallet loads of money going, getting shipped in and, and little understanding that this was actually Iran's money that was being returned to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the case of uh, re resuming uh, American uh, participation in the JCPOA, uh, for the, the Iranian side, the, what, what would that look like as far as what, what's the goodies that they're seeking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if the JCPOA is restored, I mean, Iran is going to be able to access cash than it hasn't been. But, you know, as you noted, that isn't Iran getting a windfall. I mean, that's Iran accessing money that belongs to Iran that's just tied up overseas because of, of U.S. sanctions. Uh, so, you know, one story that's been in the news quite a bit the last few days is the question of, you know, Iranian assets in South Korea and some indications that Iran may be able to access some of those. So essentially what that is, is, you know, Iran, you know, was selling oil to South Korea uh, South Korea, you know, ready to repay, you know, to pay Iran for, for that oil, but the money is still in South Korea because U.S. sanctions prevent it from being transferred to Iranian banks. So, you know, if Iran can access that money, you know, then, you know, what is likely to be used for right now, you know, based on, you know, some of the conversations that have been happening is, is actually for humanitarian um, for humanitarian goods, for, for medical supplies, for supplies to fight COVID. Uh, technically, the United States has exemptions in its sanctions that should allow Iran to engage in humanitarian transactions right now. Uh, but the complexity of the US sanctions architecture, the fear that foreign companies have that they might not be able to kind of to, 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 to navigate the complexity of US sanctions oftentimes in reality prevents these humanitarian transactions from taking place. So again, I think this is a place, a space where Biden could send some very positive signals right now. I mean, Iran has been hit very hard by COVID, hasn't been able to import, you know, food or the, the medicines, you know, and the medical supplies necessary. Uh, so freeing up some of that, those funds that are being held overseas, and helping facilitate those humanitarian transactions, you know, I think could be a um, could be a, a, a very good place to start. Um, but but after that, you know, if the United States does return to the deal and you know lift sanctions, uh, it's not going to be U.S. companies that are going into Iran because the United States still has uh, a, a primary embargo on Iran. Essentially, um, I think we're likely to see you know Chinese companies, Russian companies, European companies. Uh, begin to kind of cautiously, you know, re-enter the, the Iranian market. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, the United States does have significant leverage to try to push Iran into negotiations after the JCPOA is restored, is because those U.S. primary sanctions, you know, still exist. I mean, Iran knows that to a certain extent, even if the U.S. returns to the JCPOA, you know, there isn't going to be the foreign investment they want, there isn't going to be the economic development they want until those US primary sanctions are lifted. So the US can leverage those, you know, in future talks, you know, on a longer term framework uh, for Iran's nuclear activities or other areas of US Iranian concern. Is it right that we were causing a lot of friction with our EU partners because businesses there had uh, begun to invest in Iran after 2015 and when the uh, U.S. maximum pressure campaign started after we, we got out of the JCPOA, uh, there were third-party sanctions uh, to prevent the other participants uh, in the agreement from continuing to do business with Iran. Yeah, I I exactly. And I I'm glad you raised that because that's another 
a negative externality of the Trump administration's decision to pull out of the JCPOA that isn't you know, very much discussed. I mean, the US has typically used sanctions to great effect to exercise you know, its, its foreign policy goals, you know, particularly in the nuclear nonproliferation space. But the Trump administration's misuse of sanctions in the case of Iran uh, angered Europeans. It continued to anger Russia and China, who began to have discussions about developing channels of commerce that would be immune from US financial systems because they wouldn't be or immune from US sanctions because they wouldn't be tied to the US financial system. Uh, and that could really damage the United States' ability to effectively use sanctions down the road. Because a lot of times the effectiveness of our sanctions depend on garnering international support to actually help enforce and implement them. Um, so yes, I, I mean, that, that, that's a great point that, you know, angering our European allies, you know, over that sanctions push, uh, causing some damage to some of their companies, you know, could hurt us in the long run if we don't restore those relationships. And I think there was even an effort to develop some sort of bartering system between Europeans and, and Iran that would get outside the U.S. controlled uh, international currency. Yeah, there, there was. It's a mechanism called INSTEX, and it, um, it didn't really end up functioning, uh, I think, in part because of the complexity, because country or companies weren't willing to take the risk of potentially still running afoul of, of U.S. sanctions. Uh, but, you know, if the U.S. continues to misuse its financial power and its sanctions like this, I think we're going to see more and more efforts along those lines. And, um, and, and again, that just diminishes, you know, the sanctions as a tool of U.S. statecraft down the road. Let's, uh, let's return uh, again. Let me uh, ask our audience if they uh, want to get some questions in. We have a few minutes uh, remaining. Uh, but let me ask you, you know, we, we talked about the crux of this being preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Fissile uh, material seems to be the, uh, the, the point of the JCPOA uh, in, in the biggest part. Uh, if Iran developed enough fissile uh, material, and I think uh, there's uh, somewhat of a misunderstanding in, in the general public that uh, getting to 20% um, you need to get beyond that to 90% or so for fissile material that will enable you to build a weapon. But from 20 to 90 is not um, like going from two to 20. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, help us understand a little bit about uh, where Iran uh, could be in short order if they said, okay, we're, we're gonna uh, get enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon. And then what other uh, features of a program would they need to master and have they mastered those to be able to turn that fissile material into a weapon? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So uh, levels of uranium enrichment are sort of typically classified in three types. You know, first you have enriched uranium that's typically used for nuclear power reactors and that's under 5%. And the JCPOA limited Iran to that low level of enrichment, 3.67%. Uh, but as one of its violations of the nuclear deal, Iran began enriching uranium last month up to 20%. 20% uh, enriched uranium has some civil uses. Iran has a research reactor that produces medical isotopes using 20% enriched uranium. But, you know, as, as you noted, enriching uranium to 20%, you know, constitutes 90% of the work that's necessary to get to weapons grade. And weapons grade is typically considered anything enriched to 90% or, or higher. So as Iran produces and accumulates uranium enriched to 20%, you know, it could really cut down that breakout time or the time it would take Iran to produce the fissile material for a bomb if it chose to do so. Now, right now, Iran has only produced about 17 kilograms of that 20% material. They would need to produce um, you know, about, um, about uh, 150, 200 or so, and then enrich that to weapons grade. So, you know, the, that, that time frame hasn't, you know, dropped significantly yet, but we'll continue to head in that direction if the JCPOA isn't restored. Now, once that material is produced, you know, it has to be converted into powder, then it's, you know, converted into a metallic form and shaped, and it's fitted with an explosive package. Now, the US intelligence community has assessed since 2007 that Iran could, could take those steps 
if it chose to do so, that it has the capabilities necessary. It hasn't mastered all of them, you know, like that uranium metal production, but that they could probably do so. Um, it's hard to estimate how long that process would take. You know, it could be anywhere from a year to 18 months. Uh, so even if Iran, you know, once Iran produces that material for a bomb, like I said, there's still that significant time period after that, you know, where you'd have some time to try to influence Iran's decision-making calculus once that fissile material is produced. Okay, uh, we are short on time, but we have uh, one more question on uh, a related uh, topic, and, and I will uh, uh, thank you for all your uh, insights and perspectives on the Iranian nuclear program. And we have a question from Douglas Warney who, who asks uh, if we can uh, have you compare and contrast the North Korean, which uh, you also have the North Korean portfolio in addition to India and Pakistan. Um, we'll, we'll do those on another night. But uh, just talk to us a little bit about North Korea, compare and contrast the Iranian North Korean proliferation situation. Um, and, you know, we, we haven't heard much about the denuclearization effort in North Korea since the, uh, the summit that President Trump uh, had with the dear leader. Uh, so bring us up to date if you could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've watched North Korea long enough to know that uh, trying to make any predictions about North Korea can be a bit fraught, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll do my best. So first in terms of, you know, comparing, you know, North Korea and Iran, I mean, I, I think that's a very good question because I think, you know, North Korea is, 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 is where Iran could be if this JCPOA falls apart and collapses. I mean, the United States had a successful, had an, well, it was partially successful. We had an agreement with North Korea in the 1990s called the Agreed Framework that was addressing parts of their nuclear program that were troublesome. Uh, when they were discovered having engaged in some illicit work, rather than try to negotiate on that, um, President Bush essentially just, just killed the entire deal. And then after that, you know, we saw North Korea you know, really accelerate its nuclear weapons development. So, so I, I am concerned that if the JCPOA collapses, if Iran doesn't see negotiations as credible, that it could think then that the better alternative is to just develop a nuclear weapons program and you know and, and, and try to wield that as, as part of its attempts you know to secure itself and, and, to, and to garner influence. Um, so I think you know I said North Korea is kind of the, the lesson we don't want for, for Iran. Um, in terms of, of North Korea you know going forward, uh, you know, I actually think that President Trump's decision to engage personally with, with Kim Jong-un, uh, in 2018, you know, could have been the right choice for diplomacy with North Korea, that it could have demonstrated to North Korea that the United States was serious about transforming the relationship, you know, so serious, in fact, they were willing to meet at the head of state level to, to negotiate that. Unfortunately, there wasn't an empowered negotiating team on the US side, the US side sent a lot of mixed signals and, you know, the, the process kind of fell apart. Um, but what we're left with actually is some insight into what North Korea actually wants in negotiations. And I think that if the Biden team, you know, approaches North Korea willing to take a step-by-step -step process where actions North Korea takes to reduce nuclear risk or roll back or halt parts of its program are rewarded with limited sanctions relief or limited actions to, you know, better secure um, the, the Korean Peninsula, um, then I think, you know, there actually is an avenue for progress there. But I think it would be ideal if Biden makes the first move and doesn't wait for North Korea to try to test him. Uh, North Korea does have a tradition of, of um, you know, of testing longer range missiles of nuclear tests, you know, shortly after presidents take office. You know, it, Kim Jong-un may be showing some restraint now because the country is so internally focused because of COVID. Uh, so I think, you know, it would be wise for Biden, you know, again, not to wait until North Korea acts, but try to do something, you know, proactive uh, to set the table for negotiations and to indicate very clearly that, you know, a step-by-step -step approach is feasible and that, you know, North Korea will receive something in return, you know, if it takes concrete actions towards denuclearization. Well, that's terrific. Again, uh, Kelsey uh, Davenport, thank you so much for being with us tonight. And I won't put you on the spot by asking you which World Affairs Council that you've uh, visited is, is the best one, but well, we, know, we know the answer to that. I know Montana's got a pretty good one, so 
uh, you're you're well positioned there. Oh, well, they, they, so. they haven't invited me yet, so. Uh, <laughs> Is that right? Well, shame shame on I'm them. Not in the running yet. <laughs> okay, maybe they're they're uh, snowbound. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Kelsey Davenport, director of uh, nonproliferation at the Arms Control Association. Uh, you can uh, see her writings uh, on the Arms Control Association website and in all of those various uh, publications and uh, cable news outlets and op-ed uh, locations that we summarized uh, at the top. In, in other words, uh, she is uh, the go-to person to talk about uh, nuclear proliferation in Iran, North Korea, India, and Pakistan. And we are extremely grateful, Kelsey, uh, for you uh, being with us uh, tonight to help us understand the Iran nuclear deal and why the clock is ticking. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, I enjoyed it. And to everyone, uh, please take a look at our website, tnwac.org. There you can become a member of our World Affairs Council and uh, make a gift to uh, keep these programs uh, continuing uh, for your benefit. Thanks so much. Everyone have a good evening. Good night. <laughs>